Well, friends, we have been doing a series on the Holy Spirit, and the name of the series has been Experiencing God, and that's still very much on my mind today, to experience Him. At the same time, we're transitioning back for the next uh, few weeks into the book of John. If you recall, we were in the book of John, we took a break. Now we're back in the book of John as we're heading towards Easter. And we're gonna be looking at some of the passages that lead us there. Today, Jesus being arrested. And well, if we just read the first verse of John chapter 18 together, uh, it goes like this. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So, something I discovered this week about this little passage that really shaped much of what I'm going to say to you is this little fact that John said that he crossed the Kidron Valley. So in the Bible, mainly the Old Testament, there are these certain places, Babylon or Bethel, places that show up again and again and they mean something. There's significance. And what I discovered is, well, this, this place where it says Kidron, it, it's, it's a valley with a, with a stream or a brook that goes through it, as many valleys have. There's something really significant about this valley because if you open up the Old Testament and you read it, you discover that something happened there. And not just once. Something happened at the Kidron Valley again and again. And John, in telling us that Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley before he was arrested and taken to the cross, He's connecting that. So I'll get into that, that question. What happened again and again at the Kidron Valley that helps us understand what Jesus is doing? And I also want to tell you, this is my, my big prayer for today. My heart is still for us to experience God, yes? I just want to clarify a little of what, what that means for today really what that always means, but what's on my heart and on the prayer that I have today for us when it comes to experiencing God. What I want is for us to experience the face of Jesus. Not just to read about him and to know about him, but to know him as a person, to see his face. I'm going to pray for that, and I really want to encourage you, as I'm praying, to be asking God the same thing, saying, God, I want to see your face. I want to know you. I don't want to just read about you. I want to know you. I, I believe fully this is the sort of prayer that God answers. This is what he wants us praying. Father God, my desire, our desire is to see your face, to experience you as we look upon your face, Jesus, show us yourself, show us your, your personhood, your character. Give us that gift, Lord. Help us understand why you crossed the Kidron Valley and what it means. 
Show us yourself, Jesus. We ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so I don't know how many Bible nerds there are in the house, but if you're a Bible nerd, you love seeing these connections. If you're not really into that, you're just gonna have to bear with me and (laughs) pretend to care for a little bit. But anyways, super interesting to me. Something happened again and again and again at the Kidron Valley. What happened? Well, I gotta give you a little backdrop first. So, kind of a sad fact, if you read the Old Testament, namely uh, the books of the Kings and the books of the Chronicles, you have these kings over and over and over again. Lots of, lots of kings. A king lives, reigns for so many years, and a king dies. And almost always, as they're listing these many kings of Israel and Judah, it says, so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You have all these kings, and almost all of them, the scriptures say evil. Evil king followed by evil king followed by evil king. Almost all of them. And the thing that defines them as an evil king is that they embraced and they led the people into idolatry. They embraced idols and they led the people in this way. That's what made an evil king an evil king. Metal statues and and carved wooden images, right? And I feel like uh, to get to the heart of this, we gotta talk a little bit about that because I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think too many of us have ever felt the strong temptation to worship a statue or a carved wooden image. I mean, it, it happens here and now, today, different cultures and such. But for many of us, that's never been a temptation. Nevertheless, idolatry is the temptation of mankind. If you actually read the Ten Commandments, the first command, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's a jealous God and you cannot have another God that's more important to you than him. And really then you keep reading the next nine commands and they're really just outpourings of that first command. It's really just the first command, and you can even understand it this way. All sin, all sin is idolatry. Because all sin is when we say, God, this thing I want is more important to me than you. And it's really not even about the specific things. It's not even about, like... There's nothing wrong with metal, and there's nothing wrong with wood. God made metal, God made wood they both can be very helpful. There's nothing wrong with carving wood. I actually just ordered from Amazon a wood carving set because I want to make some spoons and, you know, it's just interesting to me. I'll probably cut my hand, but whatever. There's nothing wrong with metal and there's nothing wrong with wood. And there's nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with pleasures, food, sex. Nothing wrong with possessions, cars. There's nothing wrong with video games. There's nothing wrong with being liked by people. There's nothing wrong with careers. I'm listing these things because these are the idols of our generation. The things, hear this, 
the things that we trust will make us happy and satisfied and fulfilled. There's nothing wrong with those things. Many of those things were created by God to be enjoyed with thankful hearts when he is seen as God and trusted as God. But the great problem with idolatry is hearts that don't trust him. Hearts that think, you're not enough to satisfy me. You're, you don't want to satisfy me. You don't want to make me happy. But he does. And so we read, when it comes to idolatry, first command, the Lord, our God, is a jealous God. And that word jealous usually isn't good. I, I had the, the honor, the pleasure of preaching for the Spanish church yesterday, and when, when we read that part, and I had a translator, and I was like, the word jealous, I don't know, in English, it's usually a bad word, and, our, you know, Francisco, uh, or the... Um, the translator, he's, he said, uh, yeah, in the Spanish, it's also usually a bad word. <laughs> um, uh, it is, isn't it? Um, but not always. Sometimes to be jealous is, is really good and necessary. I mean, a classic example is that if, if, if you're a husband and your wife loves another man and you're not jealous, there's something wrong with you as a husband. Um, you, you should be jealous. Um, God is, he, there's times, and we'll see it, he, he describes himself as a, as a jealous husband. Um, actually, I, I came across this verse in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, that expresses a little bit of the jealousy of God's heart. Isaiah 55, verse 2 says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. You see, his jealousy is connected with his love and his desire to be God for his people and to give them what actually satisfies. I mean, we can all see through the fact that uh, a, a carved wooden image and a metal statue isn't going to really do anything for you. If you put your trust in that, it's like obvious that's not going to pay off. But if only we would have the, um, the wisdom and the enlightenment to understand that none of those other things can either. None of those other things that we put as our ultimate focus they can't satisfy in the end. Not really, not eternally, not forever. Instead, when we make those idols, we become slaves to them. Sometimes getting a little morsel of happiness, but overall just chasing, a life of chasing with just glimpses of happiness here and there. And if you've lived this life chasing idols, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all have, you know what I'm talking about. This is a little bit of an encouragement to be, to be honest with yourself. And so, um, so idolatry is the human condition, and idolatry is, is well, what marked all these kings as evil is they embraced idolatry and they led the people into idolatry when God wanted his people to trust him and to look to him and to be satisfied 
by his goodness and his love and all the things that he would provide for their enjoyment and, and to, to have this relationship with him. Okay, so what about the Kidron Valley? <laughs> Get to the point, Pastor Charlie. I'm working on it. Um, so almost all the kings were evil, right? But once in a while, uh, a king would emerge who God would say they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Not many, but a few of them in around 900 B.C., in the land of Judah, there was a king that arose named Asa. And he was, he was jealous for God to be trusted, for God to be experienced and worshipped. And so what he did was he went and he took the idols, he, he took the, the idol that his grandmother made that the people worshipped, and he brought it down to the valley of Kidron and burnt it. 200 years later or so, a bunch more evil kings came about. But then there was another righteous king that emerged named Hezekiah in the land of Judah. And he gathered all the idols of the land and he brought them down to the brook of Kidron and destroyed them and threw them into the brook. And then... Some more evil kings came. And then a hundred years later or so, another righteous king emerged named Josiah. And once more, he gathered the idols in the land, the metal statues, the wooden carved images, brought them down to the brook of Kidron, set them on fire, smashed the metal images into dust, and scattered the dust at the Valley of Kidron. And so, perhaps now we can see what John is doing when he brings up the fact that Jesus, on his way to the cross, went through the valley. You see, the problem with what those kings were trying to do Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, the problem was the metal images and the carved idols weren't really the problem. You can destroy them, you can burn them, you can scatter the ashes. But the people just kept going right back to it, didn't they? And if you've ever actually been in the place where you've said to yourself, you know, that's it. I'm tired of sin in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to root it out, which is not a terrible attitude to have. Um, if you've ever gotten to that place and you're like, I'm going to do it, and you try to do it, and you discover it's not so easy, and maybe, maybe you have a specific sin. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing this, and, and you stop, and another one pops up in its place, doesn't it? Maybe you've lived that life. I've lived that life. Because the problem isn't really that specific thing that you're doing, is it? The problem is a heart that just doesn't trust him. And you see, 
after all these Old Testament kings did what they did at the Valley of Kidron, it was all pointing to this righteous king who would emerge, Jesus. And when he came, when he came to destroy idols, it was going to be different. It was going to be different. He was going to do what the other kings couldn't do. And we actually read in the Old Testament that that was the plan all along. Jeremiah 31, beginning verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Oh, there's so much we could say about this, how Jesus came to forgive us, how the cross pays our sin and washes it away. But what we see here is it's going to be different this time. With this righteous king, it's going to be different because it's not just going to be in external rules to follow. It's going to be a heart change. He's going to write his law on our hearts, and we're going to know him. And that's why it's going to be different. He's going to do away with idolatry once and for all. And that's why he came to this place that the other kings went to. More on this in a little bit. Let's return to this story, John chapter 18, and we will see him getting arrested. And we're going to, the great hope, the great prayer is that we're going to, we're going to see the face of Jesus. That's, that's what I want. Um, so John chapter 18, um, beginning verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put, down, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay. Where do we begin? Considering Jesus, considering, considering Jesus. He's there. They're coming to arrest him with a mob, with lanterns and torches and weapons, swords and spears. 
He's the one in control. That's what we see here. He told the disciples some chapters earlier, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And we can see very much he's in control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. They're coming. And he goes towards them. What I'm getting at, and what we're going to see here is, this man, Jesus, he's in total control because he's the son of God, because he is God. He himself is God. And that's, that's actually... This passage here is one of the most interesting and perhaps one of the most clearest ways that Jesus himself declared himself to be God. This is, this is a very fascinating passage to me. Once in a while, you actually, there, there are some groups, um, there's some, I hesitate to use the word, but I'm gonna go ahead and use it. There's some cults that, there's there's some cults that do not believe that Jesus was God. And sometimes you'll run into them, and at least I have, and you'll chat with them about what they believe and such, and they'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He did. Um, Jesus was humble, and he had a mission. He did not go from town to town saying, hey, everyone, I'm God. He knew the people who weren't ready for that, and, and um, that was not his approach. Um, actually, at times, when the demons would figure out who he was, he told the demons to quiet down. It's not time yet. Don't tell anyone who I am. But nevertheless, there were times where Jesus made it plain who he was, and this is one of them. And it's, it's, it's very interesting how it went down. And you got you to know a little bit of the Bible. You got to be one of those Bible nerds to understand what's going on here. Um, so the mob, they're coming to arrest him, right? They're coming, they're coming to get him with, with the, the, the torches and weapons and such. And Jesus goes to them and he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And the people draw back and fall to the ground. That's what we read. And the text tells us, actually, it, after saying, uh, it, it says in, in verse... Uh, blah, 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 um, verse, uh, I don't know. It's in there. He says, I think it says five, verse five. It says, uh, it says, well, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to wonder, like, well, why did they drew back and fall to the ground? And it says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It was something about Jesus saying, I am he. That made them draw back and fall to the ground. And so this is where it gets really interesting. Um, I, I was actually just stopped in on the prayer team. And as they were praying, they were praying that our eyes would be open to the great I am. Um, that we would see, we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the great I am. And if you don't know what I'm talking about by using that phrase, I am. So the first time God revealed himself to Moses, Moses was like, so what's your name? And God said, I am who I am. I am. And 
from that uh, comes, well, um, it's wherever in the Old Testament you see the Lord with all capital letters, that's I am, that's his name, I am. And in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh, maybe. <laughs> this is really interesting to me, maybe. We don't really know for sure how it's pronounced. It's certainly the most important single word in the Bible. <laughs> and we don't really know for sure how to say it. Pretty weird, huh? Well, here's why. In ancient Hebrew, there's no vowels. And when it comes to the holy name of God, Yahweh, you shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's a holy name. Nobody said it. It's a name you don't say. It's too holy. And for so long, no one said it that we don't know for sure how to say it. <laughs> we just kind of fill in the vowels. I'm sure some educated person made an educated guess, but we don't know for sure how to say it. That's how significant it would be if someone was to utter the name. And so now we understand when Jesus said, I am he, I'm sure there was a number of ways he could have expressed that, but he used the name, Yahweh. And they heard, and at least in that moment, they believed. The people who were coming for him drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, there's another time in the Bible where something similar happens when Jesus says, I am he, but uh, I won't get into that. But here's my point. Here's my point. This man, Jesus, it's very important for us to know him as God. It's, it's crucial because we are called, created to trust him. And it's very important to trust him as God. Sometimes, some people who know me well, or if you guys listen to me, you've probably heard, I can be a bit of a worrier, okay? It's, it's a hard issue. I gotta trust God more. I can be a bit of a worrier, right? And sometimes when I'm worrying, I picture Jesus sitting down He's not worried at all. Everything that needed to be accomplished was accomplished. He's not in an anxious frenzy. He's sitting down. And I try to picture him sitting down, and I, and I, and I, I try to look to him, because if he's not worried, why should I be worried? He's in perfect control. Everything's, everything's going according to plan, perfect plan. Okay, I, I told this, I, I gave this illustration, like, this is one of the first sermons I gave when I first came here, but it came to mind again, so you just have to sit through it again. Um, uh, when I first got here, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Vern. Uh, many of you know Vern, he was part of the church for a while. I think he moved to Ottawa, I believe. Uh, I think you'll still catch him on the Zoom every now and then. Vern... Uh, for 40, 50 years, he was a pilot 
first in the military and then for Air Canada. And that, I, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I, so I, I asked them, I sat down with them, I was like, okay, so in all those years, was there ever a time where, like, you were worried? Because sometimes on planes, I get a little worried, right? You hit a little turbulence. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> so I was like, okay, 40, 50 years, there had to be some, like, circumstances, right, where, like, something came up where you were like, uh-oh, right? And without even flinching or hesitating, he says no. No, because anything that goes wrong, I know how to fix. And that just stunned me. So you were never once worried? He says, no. And I picture myself sitting in the back of the plane, all worried every time we hit a bump, right? Every time we hit a little turbulence. And there's Vern in the front driving the plane, not worried at all. <laughs> and Jesus, as God, who is sitting down, let me just let you know, he's not worried at all. Everything is going according to plan, and it's a good plan, and, and we can trust him. These people, this mob, they came. Jesus told them he was God. They fell down. You can bet afraid being exposed to God. And see, we, we don't need to be afraid. This is very important. Jesus, he was and he is God. But this is, this, is, this is the beauty. This is the beauty of the message we proclaim. This Jesus who was and is God, he came to us as man. And he lives in the flesh as a man. When I speak about experiencing God and seeing the face of Jesus, I'm talking about sitting across from a person. I'll get to that in a moment, but even here we can see um, Jesus is not afraid at all of what's going to happen because he knows the plan. He's not afraid but he is in pain, in agony that's already begun. And you know, you can ask the question, and I don't know the answer to this, what was the greatest pain of it all? Was it the nails in your hands, the nails in your feet? Was it the mocking of the people, you know, the torture? Maybe, but it might have been this. It might have been this here. When we speak about Jesus and the life he gives, sometimes we speak about the night he was betrayed. Um, Judas, Judas is who betrayed him. We read that. Matthew tells us, we don't see it here, the very last word that Jesus ever spoke to Judas, the very last word was friend. Psalm 55 says, if it was an enemy who did it, I would be able to bear it, but it was you, my friend. We had sweet fellowship. They, for years, they had meals together, they, they laughed together, just like you would with a friend. What I'm trying to do here is I want us to grasp the humanity of Jesus. I'll be honest, for myself, 
The fact that Jesus is God, that's easy. The ability for myself to feel the fear of the mob that just falls down in fear of God, that's easy. But to grasp that he was a man, a person, oh, that's, that's the beauty where we can find God, we can meet with God as a person who knows pain, a person who laughs, who eats. Sometimes when I'm laying in bed, I, I close my eyes and I picture myself sitting at my table in my kitchen and Jesus sitting across from me. And, and sometimes we'll talk like, right, what do you want me to cook? Because I love to cook. And do you want some coffee? And just as I would if any of you came over. And then I imagine him looking at me saying, so how are you doing? What's going on? And I'll start to tell him what I'm kind of perhaps anxious about, uh, confused about, frustrated by. And I just imagine just how he responds. He asks a lot of questions, I've found. And perhaps you could say it's just my imagination. But to be honest, it feels like more. It's like this person that I know. If, if you know someone really well, if I'm having a conversation with my wife, I'm going to imagine a conversation with my wife, her sitting across from the table, and I'm going to tell her this, I know how she's going to react. And so it would be pretty easy for me to imagine my wife in that situation too. With Jesus, there's just something about it. And I'll find myself, sometimes for a really long time, just having this conversation in my mind with this person. And beloved, to see his face, to know him, to see his face. This is life. To be able to trust him with, with everything. This, this is life. Um, a little bit more, a little, uh, a little bit more about, about Jesus, about knowing someone. If you really want to know someone, understanding what motivates them. That's just so crucial to knowing someone. You, you can really say that a person is defined by what they focus on. What they focus on. And, and so Jesus, as they're coming for him, arresting him, as he's getting betrayed, tortured, crucified, what is he focusing on? He feels the pain. He feels the pain. He feels all of that. But he's making the deliberate decision to not focus on that because there's something he wants uh, it, it, before this, before this passage in, in John chapter 17, in Jesus' prayer, verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This is him tearing down idols and destroying them at the brook of Kidron. I want them to see me. Sometimes, sometimes when you pray, at least I do, sometimes when I pray, I pray for good things that I should pray about. Sometimes I pray for things I'm supposed to pray about. Sometimes I pray for things I want. And this word here, here Jesus is praying for what he wants. I want them. And so he went to the cross. And as I was concerned this, I thought of Jacob, Genesis chapter 29, if you know the story, it says Jacob served seven years to get Rachel to be his wife. Uh, 
but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. His eyes were set on what he wanted, and so he was able to endure. And we read in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him. And what is the joy? It's what he wants to be able to sit down at the table with us, across from us, and to be able to say, what's going on? Let's talk. Let's have fellowship. Let's have a, a meal together. Let's, let's know each other. I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you see his heart here? He came to tear down idols, to change our hearts, to trust him, to purify for himself. They will be mine. That's what he wanted. Oh, to sit across from him and to know what he wants, to know what he cares about, and what he wants is us. Sometimes you'll meet someone and they'll say, hey, what's going on? And you know they're busy. You know they don't care. It happens. I've been that person. When Jesus says, what's going on? He cares. He wanted this so much, this ability to sit across from the table from us, to dine with us. He wanted this so much. That's why he went to the cross. That's what we read. This is the last passage. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Hear this, displayed in the face of Christ. This is what it's all about, to experience God, to know him. It's to see the face of God in the face of a man. Father God, allow us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that the face of you, Jesus, would be beautiful to us. You who came to be our Savior, to, to give your life for us, Lord. Oh, let us have this sweet fellowship of knowing you, of trusting you, Lord. Oh, let us trust you, God. We just praise you, God, in your name, Jesus, amen. Questions that popped up in your mind during that message, you can either text it to the, mess, to the, uh, the number up there, or you can raise your hand and the microphone's going to be brought to you. Um, while we're waiting, I have a quick question, uh, a bit more of a lighthearted one. Uh, when you lie down in bed and you picture Jesus at your table, um, 
What is he wearing? I never thought of that. <laughs> I guess I'm more looking at his face. <laughs> I can tell you with all honesty, yesterday we had Italian food together. <laughs> I said, what do you want to eat? And he said, let's do something Italian. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding at all. That's literally the conversation that went on in my head. These are just kind of warm-ups for me to pray, actually. I imagine that, and it just kind of in my mind sets the scene of like, I'm talking to a person here. And then from that, I start sharing my heart. That's really good. Are there any questions in the room? Oh, back there? Roger. All right. Uh-oh. <laughs> Let's do it. So when you say we see the whoa, see the face of God in Jesus, I haven't seen Jesus. So how can I see the face of God? Yeah. Um, These portraits of artists. I don't know if someone really actually copied Jesus yep. way back two thousand years ago. Right. Right. See. There was a lot of people then who saw his face literally, and they didn't really see it. So when we see, talk about seeing the face of Jesus, we're not talking about the nose and the eyes and the chin. We're talking about the person, um, the character, the, the face. Um, and in this way, as he is speaking our hearts, and showing us who he is, his character, his goodness, um, then I, I think this is what we're talking about. And it's probably worth adding, right now we see, as the scriptures say, as in a mirror dimly. Um, we don't see fully, but we will. Um, the great hope that we have in the appearing of Jesus is we're going to see him as he is, and then we're going to everything's going to change. Um, but now we're being, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of God and we're being transformed from glory to glory, as in we're growing. I know more about this person, Jesus, than I knew last year and the year before that. Like we're being transformed from glory to glory as we're getting to know him better. And as we get to know him, his person, we're, we're seeing more of his face. Um, so good question. Thanks, Roger. A question here on the text line it says, Do we overly formalize prayer? If so, what's a better approach? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you have, like, you know, the Lord's Prayer or certain prayers and you just kind of read through it remotely or rotely, is that the word? I don't know. If you just kind of say it formally and you're not actually meditating on the truths behind it, well, that's a waste of time. But a lot of times, like for me, like I'll say the Lord's Prayer and I'll meditate on each part. Like sometimes I'll pray like, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's just focus on that Father aspect for a little bit. And I'll just kind of pray with that in mind. Like, Lord, illuminate to my heart that you are my Father. Help me, help that set the tone of the rest of my prayer. God, help me know you as Father. Um, hallowed be your name. 
Lord, you want to show yourself. That's what that means. You want to show yourself. You want your glory to be known. Lord, uh, let, let that be known to my heart. Let me, let me see your glory. Let me experience your glory, Lord. And, and let that be true for our church, for my neighbors. So, so I'm using that formula, but I'm also trying to meditate and, and, and think about it so it's real and it's not just empty words and, and vain repetitions. Um, is there anyone else in the room that have a question? Yeah, right down here. Uh, yeah, uh, just keep your hand up. And I can probably hear you. Oh. <laughs> oh, here it comes. Thank you. Could you, Charlie, could you, Charlie, elaborate on what it means uh, when God says his name is or he answers, I am. Could you go into that and elaborate, please? Well, um, when he says my name is I am, I think the thinking there is, you know, you have like uh, Jesus of Nazareth, or let me think of it this way. A lot of times you say like, you know, Isaac, son of Abraham, where they're kind of like defined by where they came from, like Jesus of Nazareth. And with God, he is, by saying I am who I am, is I am the eternal one. I am self, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like he is, he, he uh, I don't know, it's hard for me to define. It's one of the, um, I think in one of the aspects of I, I am is speaking to his eternal nature of being God. And so, I, th I think perhaps by not giving him, like, there's a lot of names in the Bible. Um, you know, God, there's a time where God says, my name is Jealous. You know, and he's trying to point to a certain aspect of his character. Um, but I think the I am, I am is just like, I am God. Like, I am God. That's, um, I, I'm at a loss for words, to be honest. Uh, but I am, that's, that was his name, I am, so... I'll think about that. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up in, in another sermon sometime. That's a really good question. You got me. <laughs> All right, we've got time for uh, one more back there. Um, Basil. Yeah, <laughs> Charlie. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Charlie. That really, uh, really spoke to me this morning and I think spoke to where I am in my life uh, um, on a number of issues. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when we talk about idols and we talk about, you know, you were talking about worry and we have other things going on in our lives that are very preoccupying us right now. Um, you know, how much of this comes down that we, we completely battle with the idea to always have to be in control? We need to be in control. We need to be in charge. Is that, it just seems to me that it's so hard to give that up. And I just want to know what you thought about that and how that related to what you said this morning. Yeah, that is really a big aspect of it, isn't it? Where it's not about the things we're doing, it's about the heart of trust. Can we trust him as God to be in control? And here's one more final thing. Jesus came to destroy idols once and for all. And perhaps, like myself, you've noticed that some of those 
idolatrous patterns have a way of sticking around, right? <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a second. I thought he came to destroy it once and for all. In our hearts, as, as, as we believe in him, he's there. Here's, here's the truth for the Christian. I might not always serve God as I ought. I still might sometimes chase after an idol here or there, or sometimes more. That'll happen still. But, oh, Jesus, I want you. I want you to change me. I want you to live in me. On a heart level, I want him to be God, and I want to trust him. And I don't always know how, and sometimes I fail at that. But, oh, I want him. And in this way, we're set free. In this way, we have hearts that want him. We want him to be God. And the good news, the full good news, is there's going to come a day when we're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be changed with bodies that no longer get confused and, 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 and bodies that no longer feel temptations to idols. We're going to see clearly. Um, and, and as our hearts have already been redeemed and, and resurrected, our bodies will be as well. And we will be done with idolatry forever. Very good. Thank you so much, Pastor Charlie.